welcome to a podcast for the Journal of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. I am Dr. Burke Leland Katkai, Contributing Editor of Nutrition and Clinical Practice and a member of the Physician Engagement Committee of ASPEN, otherwise known as American Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Today, we have the honor of having Drs. Inuk Zanvakili and Octavia Pickett-Blakely join us. Both are authors in the article entitled, A Phenotypic Approach to Obesity Treatment, which will be published in the October 2023 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Dr. Zanvakili is an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and adjunct assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's a gastroenterologist with a subspecialty focus on obesity and weight loss, and his research focuses on how enteric hormones are involved in obesity and how they can be leveraged for novel weight loss therapies. Dr. Pickett-Blakely is an associate professor of clinical medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, where she is the director of the Penn Center for GI Nutrition. Thank you, Dr. Zanvakili and Pickett-Blakely for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So before we start our discussion, could you tell us whether you have any disclosures on this topic that you would like to share? Uh, I would like to disclose that I do function as a consultant for Novo Nordis, and I also served as a content expert during the drafting of the AGA's clinical practice guidelines on obesity pharmacotherapy. I have no disclosures. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your disclosures. We often see these infographics highlighting the increasing prevalence of obesity in the country. What are some of your thoughts why we do not have a good handle on controlling this epidemic? Are our current treatments ineffective? Thanks so much for that question, Berkeley. You're right. We've watch the obesity epidemic sort of evolve. And uh, at this point, it has caused significant complications for our patients in terms of long-term conditions. There are financial implications, there's psychosocial implications. And in terms of why we don't have a good handle on the epidemic, I think it's a complicated answer, just like the pathophysiology of obesity is complex. So first, we have a mismatch between the number of patients who are affected by this terrible chronic illness and the qualified practitioners and clinicians who are available to treat these patients. Secondly, in terms of prevention, there are many interventions such as nutritional counseling that are not covered by payers. And this is absolutely critical to keeping patients well and preventing obesity. Third, in order to treat a condition, you actually have to first recognize that it actually exists. And studies have shown that for many patients, their excess body weight obesity is not recognized in terms of ICD-9 coding and oftentimes not addressed during routine health visits. And the reason that it is not addressed is because many physicians and other clinicians don't feel adequately equipped with training and education that allows them or enables them to treat their patients. So it's indeed a a complicated reason why the epidemic has gotten to the point where it is now. And so we will need interventions at every end, not just with therapeutics, but we'll need education for our clinicians. We'll need intervention from our lawmakers and intervention from payers to cover effective therapies for our patients. And then we'll have to continue to educate our patients on the link between obesity and chronic conditions. Complex pathophysiology indeed. And that actually leads me to a question where in your article, you 
entitled it, A Phenotypic Approach to Obesity Treatment. So what do you mean by obesity phenotypes and why might they be important for nutritional treatment approaches for obesity? That's a great question. So as Dr. Pickett-Pickley alluded to, you know, we have all these social, psychological, and neurohormonal factors that act complexly together to result in um, obesity. And so we know that there are different drivers which may affect one individual over another more or less. And these drivers can be measured as phenotypes. Um, and the phenotypes that uh, have been proposed by doctors Acosta and Camilleri at the Mayo Clinic previously, and that there's more research into, are looking at these drivers. And those uh, can be broken down mainly into four groups. Those are an abnormal satiation, or what they would term a hungry brain, which is, uh, you know, in, in terms of not feeling full to terminate eating. Abnormal satiety, which is when there's a quick return to hunger, and they term that hungry gut. Abnormal eating behaviors, which is uh, associated with emotional hunger and eating to cope with stress, anxiety, or depression. And then finally, the fourth group would be an abnormal energy expenditure, or what they would term a slow burn, which is individuals who have a lower resting energy expenditure. All of these phenotypes can be seen to be abnormal in individuals who are obese as compared to normal weight individuals. And some of them have a trend in terms of having an apparent larger phenotype individuals who are, have a higher BMI. These Acosta phenotypes that you mentioned are based on physiologic testing. Is there a way to elicit or determine these phenotypes during nutrition counseling? So it's clear if you take a look, if you read the Acosta paper that was sort of the impetus for us to write uh, this paper, there are a battery of complex physiologic tests ranging from gastric scintigraphy to visual analog scale testing questionnaires that elicit association uh, between eating behaviors uh, and emotional eating. Uh, and so we recognize that in general practice, this battery of testing is not widely available. However, in terms of uh, counseling patients uh, on an everyday basis, we believe, and this uh, needs to be confirmed with studies, but we believe that there are some factors that can be elicited during the course of counseling that can give a hint or can possibly signal that an individual may belong to a particular phenotype. And I do want to, I do want to add that there is thought to be significant overlap between the phenotypes. So the likelihood that an individual will have the hungry brain and the hungry gut phenotype, there also may be an element of abnormal eating behaviors and or abnormal or slow burn. So I did want to put that out there that there is a possibility, the likelihood since obesity physiology is so complex, the likelihood that an individual is affected by more than one or expresses more than one phenotype is highly likely. So a lot of uh, our counseling of nutritional pa patients with nutritional disorders is heavily based on history. And so, for example, asking questions like, when you eat, at what point do you start to feel full? When you do feel full, how long does that sensation of fullness last? Uh, in states of 
low mood, sleep deprivation, anxiety, do your eating behaviors change? So although these have not been necessarily validated and linked to specific uh, phenotypes, there are historical clues that could um, provide a window that could lead to um, linking an individual to a specific phenotype. So very interesting. And in your treatment paradigm, you address the role of phenotypes in applying lifestyle modifications. How would you position adjunctive therapies like anti-obesity medications, bariatric endoscopy, and even surgery? Well, when you look at the guidelines that are established by um, multiple societies, lifestyle modifications are foundational for management for the management of obesity. And so this is why we thought that applying this phenotypic approach was so important to patients with obesity, because we recognize that nutritional counseling, exercise counseling is at the forefront of managing, is managing patients. We also recognize that the sustainability of lifestyle modifications is suboptimal at best. So in other words, individuals who are able to lose weight strictly or solely with lifestyle modifications have a high rate of recidivism. And it's important to ensure that the lifestyle modifications that are um, implemented by our patients are those that are sustainable and those that will result in long-term weight loss and wellness. So with that as the foundation Anti-obesity medications, bariatric endoscopy, and uh, surgery certainly have their place. Guidelines currently state that lifestyle modifications should be the foundation and that adjunctive therapies like anti-obesity medication and bariatric endoscopy should be leveraged if an individual has no response to lifestyle modifications. And then surgery as well can be recommended for patients who fit criteria for bariatric surgery. As time moves on and as we, we see how effective therapies are applied, it is possible that similar to some of the other conditions that we treat, that as opposed to this pyramid type implementation of interventions, we may see you know, the employment of dual therapy. So for example, lifestyle modifications with anti-obesity medications or lifestyle modifications with bariatric endoscopy. Although I do want to just emphasize again that that, though that is not the paradigm that is outlined in our guidelines, but adjunctive therapies are recommended for patients who do not respond to lifestyle modifications or who have weight regain following lifestyle modifications. Enoch, I'm not sure if you wanted to add anything else to that. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with everything that you uh, mentioned. The other thing to to mention, which was outlined in our paper, is uh, as long as uh, insurance uh, allows for and the patient has coverage for it, uh, we do try to tailor the medication to the obesity phenotype. Um, so, for instance, with uh, patients that have abnormal satiety, um, the thought is that the GLP-1 receptor agonist class uh, may work better, for instance, for patients who have the abnormal energy expenditure, depending on insurance coverage and local state laws, use of fentermine or fentermine to pyramate may be effective. And for our patients that have anxiety, depression, and there seems to be 
abnormal eating behaviors, use of a GI psychiatrist um, is something that I'd highly recommend. But uh, again, further investigation um, is needed. And you know, um, just to your point, I, I, I didn't want to state the obvious. For those of you who may be listening who have not read our paper, uh, the paper that we referenced that was the impetus for our, our review was the uh, Acosta and colleagues paper. And this paper basically showed that using a phenotypic approach, employing the use of anti-obesity medications based on particular phenotype did result in increased weight loss. So in individuals who had a certain obesity phenotype, they were matched with an anti-obesity medication. And those individuals who are matched based on phenotype versus those who had standard of care prescription of anti-obesity medication, those who had a phenotypic, a phenotypic approach were shown to have greater weight loss com compared to the patients who did not. So the one size fit all or, you know, generalized writing a prescription for a patient, that approach was shown to be less effective in uh, this elegant study by Dr. Acosta and colleagues. But this all has been very exciting, and there seems to be an explosion of treatment options over the past decade, and this field is very rapidly evolving. I mean, where do you see this going in the foreseeable future? I think that we are at the beginning of finally having effective treatments for obesity. And in addition to GLP-1 receptor uh, agonist medications that have become so popular, there are many more coming down the pipeline that are going to hit different receptors and different hormonal targets. And I think it's going to require a combination therapy because we live in in a world now that is obesogenic and we need to think of obesity as a chronic disease that requires chronic uh, treatment. So as our options expand, it'll become more of a question of which patient's going to benefit from which treatment more. So I think it's a very fascinating, exciting field to be in currently. And I agree. I, I also think that as our treatment armamentarium expands, we'll have uh, at our disposal more tools, but it's, 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 it's critical that we apply the appropriate tool to the patient who needs it. So if you need a Phillips screwdriver, you don't want to use a hammer. And so I think that analogy, we want to make sure that we're using the correct therapeutic intervention for the ideal patient. And I think that will optimize our outcomes for sure. In the future, I also see the utilization of multimodality therapy. We already see some of that in clinical practice. It hasn't yet made it into our guidelines. So as I alluded to earlier, the utilization of lifestyle modifications with anti-obesity medications perhaps with a bariatric endoscopic procedure, or for example, patients who have undergone bariatric surgery for weight loss, and as opposed to waiting for the time for when adaptation has occurred and weight regain um, sort of gets out of control, perhaps we'll have developed thresholds for when patients are approaching uh, weight regain following procedures or following prior weight loss that we can be more proactive with um, interventions to help them with preventing weight regain uh, and losing the, the progress that they have made. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Zanvakili and Pickett-Blakely for enlightening us with your expertise on these fascinating concepts of precision medicine and nutrition in the treatment of obesity. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. To our audience, uh, we'd also like to thank you for uh, listening to this Aspen podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Mm-hmm.